Welcome to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. I'm Yusip. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hello there, and welcome back again to another episode of Control-Alt-Azure. I am Tobias, and I'm here with Yusip. What's up? Hey, Toby. Something changed. I have a new microphone. And well, it sounds great. Good. I'm relieved because uh, the, the one that I used to have, I still have it next to me. I'm trying to sell it. But the, the one I had for a couple of years, I was super happy with this. But being stuck at home for, I don't know, has it been a decade already? At least it feels like that. I figured that is there something I can perhaps optimize a little bit for for these podcasts and the meetings I do on a daily basis? And I figure perhaps the microphone is the next thing I need to upgrade. Everything else I've upgraded mostly. So I went with a new microphone. It has different settings. It has a, a different type of cable. And I start reading on, 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 on different audio uh, bulletin boards and watching YouTube videos and people are giving me different recommendations. How should you position the microphone and everything else? And at the end of the day, I yanked out my old one. I put this in there. That's that. I hope the quality is teeny tiny bit better than previously. Yeah, I, I didn't notice anything. So it sounds good to me. Good, good. So what have you been up to lately? So I've, I've had my cold now for about 10 days. It's not really passing. I did a couple of tests for COVID, so that's good. Uh, I don't have that. So instead of doing anything, you know, active, um, I, you know, as I was supposed to, I was supposed to be out this weekend in the woods for a three-day, pretty long, fifty-kilometer hike, but obviously with a flu, you know, that got canceled. So instead, I ordered the final pieces for my outdoor gear for pretty much the coming fifteen years. So now I have everything that I need, and the final bits was one. Uh, water filtration system, which is portable, so I can carry it with me. Because in the past, maybe I had four liters of water, which is a lot to carry in the backpack. And, you know, the one liter is approximately one kilo to carry, which is a lot extra weight. So with this thing, I can just collect water as I go in, in nooks and creeks, and I can filter it on my way. And I also have my boiling kit, so I can boil the water after I filter it and get all the germs and stuff out. I can still cook it for a long time, for 20 minutes. I think that's the Swedish military recommendation is you cook it for about 20 minutes and then it's sanitized and you can drink it. And so I will lessen my weight on my uh, hiking adventures by carrying a water filtration kit. I uh, think the whole whole thing in doing these hikes and, and, and doing podcasts and, and all things in IT and tech is the gadgets and the gear that research into what should I get and is this a good one and is somebody selling this second hand that's the whole thing everything else is a byproduct <laughs> yeah maybe there's something to that I do like my gadgets when it comes to hiking and outdoor I'm not gonna say you know how much I've spent on various things but I, I just got a new backpack as well that's the other thing that I got apart from the, uh, the watering filter system and you know a quality backpack is expensive but it's it is, super yeah. cool it's got integrated, you know, harnesses and straps where I can, without taking it off my back, I can mount my trekking poles. I can just fold them in and mount them on the backpack securely without even taking it off. There's built-in liquid systems and all kinds of stuff. 
you know, obviously you don't need all of that, but I do go out a couple of times a week, many times uh, or, or many seasons around the year. Winter time is perhaps one or two times per week only, but I am outdoors a lot and I can justify the purchase for these things. But like I said, this is probably, now I've done the final purchase for what is to come to be used now for the coming maybe 15 years until next episode, maybe. <laughs> so almost exactly 20 years ago, I spent three weeks in Lapland hiking. And at the time, it was a cultural thing that everybody in my age group would pack their stuff together and perhaps go with a church or something else to the wilderness to, to do something. I can't recall what find it yourself. was. <laughs> yeah, find yourself perhaps. And at that time, uh, the, the idea is that the backpack would be this huge thing and it was put together with, with aluminum or steel pipes and then it would have a bit of a fabric and it would really um, carve into your flesh when you, were, when, when you were carrying that. And my backpack then was 29 kilos when we got started. So that's what, 70 pounds, I think. And we carried that for three weeks on, on the hikes. So we would be able to... Um, stay in tents and, and go over the small mountains and whatnot. So it would be interesting now that I'm listening to your outdoor gear uh, purchases, would it be interesting to go to the store now and say, I want the same stuff I had 20 years ago, but it better be good this time. Yeah, it's going to be good. Uh, I can tell you that with all the, the functions of the, the modern backpack, for example, I, I just fill this up. And I had 18 kilos loaded, which is a lot. Uh, at least it's a lot for me to carry if I'm going to go on a 60 kilometer hike. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of weight. Um, you know, I loaded it up just to test it out. I, I went around the house a bit and, you know, and I compared it to my previous backpack. And the previous one exhausted my shoulders in pretty much five minutes. This one, I don't even feel it because it's super perfect fit with the, the hip uh, the hip belt kind of thing that kind of takes all, all the load off. Yeah. So I didn't even use the shoulder straps almost. Stuff like that. Of course, everything is gadgets and functions. And when you use them the right way, it gets more fun, especially when it's heavy lifting. So Exactly. Yeah. We, we should do an episode on just what sort of gadgets we'd like to get, how much it weighs, and can we carry this in the woods or not? But today we will be talking about Azure updates. So this you has been a tradition. You can yeah. carry them in the woods as yeah, well. Yeah, true. So, so what's new in Azure? Would you like to start with, with your top pick? Yeah, so I took a look on some of the favorite things uh, that I saw recently. I know you did an episode with Martin um, a while back about the uh, Ignite uh, announcements. So following that, there's been a plethora of announcements from the Azure side uh, coming out. So I want to highlight some of the things that I think are most important or most interesting that I think a lot of people might use. The first one is Azure Functions support .NET 5 in production. This is now GA. So previously, uh, you call a class library running in the same process as the host. Now we can run outside of some of the common constraints and run it in an isolated process. And that also means that we can develop the function more decoupled from the version of the function runtime in the app service. So if the app service is on a specific version now, you can still upgrade your function to a different version because it's running isolated in your isolated process. You need to note there are some feature and functional differences. I will put the link in the show notes to those. 
So if you have been using functions for .NET Core 3.1, for example, and then you're moving to .NET 5, there is going to be changes and breaking changes as well. So you need to take a look at that comparison chart to kind of see which of these things am I using and how do I use them now in .NET 5 if I'm going to move in that direction. It might also be a good idea to take a look at the LTS support or long time support uh, with Microsoft and Azure functions. Uh, so you understand what kind of support they have for .NET 5 and whether or not you should wait until .NET 6. Uh, I've seen discussions on GitHub in the functions repositories where people are waiting until .NET 6. Uh, meanwhile, I am looking at .NET 5 for what it is and I am super keen to upgrade. Um, you know, and, and if shit hits the fan, I still have my uh, .NET Core 3.1 apps or whatever. So I can always continue using those if .NET 5 would not work. So, um, you mean so, yeah, to, so you mean to say that people on a GitHub repo are discussing that they are not going to use .NET 5 in production before .NET 6 is available? Some people are doing that, yes, because of the LTS support. Um, yeah, okay, got it. So for me on the list, uh, general availability of Azure routing preference. And in essence, this is fairly simple. When you're provisioning certain services that, that have to do with how data gets routed between whatever, perhaps a bunch of VMs, you can now choose between use the public internet or use Microsoft Global Network. And the difference here is that public internet means your ISP and do whatever you can do within your existing connection and, and with the services you already purchase. And a Microsoft Global Network is utilize the backbone of Azure for routing whatever traffic needs to be routed to, to a different location, perhaps. And the idea here is that you can now figure out both cost and security and sort of balance out which one is optimal for my specific need. And curiously, uh, on the, on the uh, announcement, Microsoft states that for cost, it might be easier to go with public internet. But for security, Microsoft Global Network might be better. I read something about Azure Storage also now having routing preferences. So I, I guess this is the thing that they're now making use of. So you can kind of select and direct the network traffic the way you want. Yes. Cool, interesting. I think they also refer to that as, you know, when you, where you kind of enter like the flow with the normal internet traffic and you can uh, see where it enters and access the Microsoft network at the pop locations closest to your storage account. Um, I think this is technically sometimes referred to as the hot potato uh, routing, which is yeah. a fun word. And, and I think we discussed with Martin uh, a couple of episodes ago on Ignite announcements. There's also something called Azure Route Server, which is a separate thing, but it allows for even more control how your traffic is routed and, and how you want to have those different links and what sort of uh, balance or cost you want to put for those. So depending on situation, you can you, you have more control on how traffic flows through, through your data estate in the cloud or to on-prem, depending with these two selections. Plus with route server, you get more flexibility. Next on my, uh, on my end would be Azure API management and the extension for Visual Studio Code. So if you, I, I know we touched about, uh, touched on API management in a couple of episodes. And if you do use this, uh, you can manage your API management or you can manage your API management service 
uh, directly from inside code. You can edit and bug uh, API management policies. You can extract configurations of an API into a set of ARM templates. Cool thing is you can also import Azure functions, Azure app services, and open API specs into API management. And you can generate Azure functions based on API definitions. So with the, the extension of uh, Azure API management for Visual Studio Code, you can start doing a lot of things. So if you are working with code and you're working with API management, these two now work better together. So again, we'll put the, the link to this extension, of course, in the, in the show notes. You can grab it or you can just Google it, but it's good to be aware of. And this is also GA. This has been released. There's a lot of people already downloaded it. Now it's readily available and released to general availability. So take a look at that. This is good info. I need to try this because last week I set up a self-hosted Azure API management gateway in a Docker container in my on-premises network. So I need to try out if this VS Code extension also allows me to push down whatever settings need to be pushed down to the self-hosted gateway that then connects with Azure API management as well. So next from me, public preview for Azure Trusted Launch for VMs. And this is an interesting one. The, the idea is that when you provision a new VM, there's a new checkbox called Trusted Launch. And it allows you to protect those VMs against bootkits, rootkits, and kernel-level malware. But you cannot enable this for existing VMs. So you always have to provision a new one, although, of course, you can reuse the existing disks and recreate the VM. And this utilizes the virtual TPM chip in Azure. So that's a separate setting. So that's also needed for this to work. But once you enable this, then the VMs that you have can only run signed and verified bootloaders, signed and verified OS kernels and drivers. So I feel that if you run VMs in the cloud and you really want to focus on security, this would be one of those settings you should look into. But it's in public preview, which means, and this is a bit weird, it's only available in North Europe and South Central US for now. It's very and specific. I'm, it is. I, I'm not sure if I've ever seen this combination together. It's often West Europe and something else, but now it's North Europe. No idea, but it, I'm glad it's available in, in two continents so you can try it out. Uh, so on my end, another thing is something that is also in public preview, uh, Microsoft PowerFX. So open source, low code programming language. This is the uh, formula-based language that originated from Microsoft Excel. And if you've worked with Excel, you know about the formulas and you can do all kinds of crazy things. Uh, my father who does not work in IT, he is a magician with Excel, but nothing else with a computer. And these form formulas, I, I just briefly showed him some of these things. And he's like, yeah, I, I get this. I understand everything. And I'm like, cool, you're now, you're now a low-code developer. And he's like, awesome. <laughs> um, so, so with that, you have integrations with Azure services like Visual Studio Code, uh, GitHub, Azure DevOps, and more. So developers don't have to change the development process when working with this. So instead, you can now use low-code language in current tools and processes to ship faster. Now, of course, this doesn't replace all other types of development you do. It just, it's a different enabler for the organizations 
uh, to make use of to uh, better, more quickly, uh, maybe create these uh, kind of apps that you need in your organization to succeed. So this is built for low code. So PowerFX is the foundation of Microsoft Power Apps Canvas. And this is now being extended across the Power Platform to Microsoft Dataverse, Microsoft Power Automate, Microsoft Power Virtual Agents, and more. So Microsoft Power FX, it's probably something you will see a lot more of. But again, it's I don't see this as a replacement for devs. I see it as a complement for enabling like power users to do more with their no-code, low-code solutions, and also tying this into existing tools, which for a long time was a problem. You know, a lot of people had some JSON file here, some script over there, you know, all kinds of random things spread out. And in the last couple of years with the Power Platform and what, what I'm seeing there is Microsoft is really pulling everything in the same direction. And this is just another step uh, in that journey. So check that out. It's in public preview, Microsoft Power FX. Good stuff. And perhaps worth noting here is that if you build anything on Power BI, that will still have its internal M language. And I'm not sure if they plan on replacing M with PowerFX or not, but it seems there's now sort of two languages in the Power Platform, plus, of course, everything else you can do with .NET and other languages in there. It's interesting times, though. And I, I feel now that they've formalized the language, it makes it easier also for people to follow up on what's happening with that in the future. Yep. So next up for me, public preview for automatic VM guest patching for Linux-based virtual machines. But, it, but this also works for Windows VMs. So the announcement is for Linux VMs, but the support is also for Windows VMs. And this is, this is fairly clever. It will look at off-peak hours when your VM is not utilized based on the time zone. And it will automatically patch critical and security patches and reboot if required. So sort of automatically patch, I don't really care what's happening, just make it so and reboot. But obviously if you enable this, you have to have some sort of testing environment or testing framework in place that if they happen to reboot, that somebody's actually watching that they come back up. And if something fails, somebody will react that, okay, we need to fix this VM now. I like that. So this already existed for Windows, right? And, and this is now yeah. getting into the Linux VMs. Cool. Yes, yes. And I, I feel that Windows updates have been a thing for, for so many admins over the, uh, over the past decades that if we can finally automate the, the, the basics of this, it, it makes sense and it also frees up time from people to actually do something something that would be more productive as opposed to clicking next, 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 reboot, waiting for the reboot to complete to figure out if everything still works. Makes sense. So another thing also in public preview is Cosmos DB to support role-based access control with AAD. And more and more services embrace RBAC or role-based access control. And Cosmos DB is not an exception to that. So you, you kind of get with this, RBAC approach, you kind of get a data plane authorization, and this helps you fine-grain permission uh, models and, and kind of leverage AED. I talked about this in the past in several episodes. I know I talked about it in the uh, Azure Container Instance or Azure Container Registry episode that we did, uh, where you can also use RBAC to kind of control the permissions for some things. 
And this is true for a lot of services. Microsoft also rolled out recently this for Azure Storage. You can use AAD, a role-based access control to access, access a, a storage account, stuff like that. Now they're rolling this out for Cosmos DB as well, but it only applies to SQL API. So if you use anything else under the, the umbrella of Cosmos, uh, RBAG is not there at the moment. So if you are using SQL API, you can start leveraging this. It's in public preview, I might add again. Uh, so if you are running this in production, I would wait until it's actually in GA, but you can start now in your test and lab environments to experiment with it. And I do recommend anyone to take a look at that. So you don't use access keys and all these kind of things. Instead, if you have the capability and um, you know, use role-based access control where you can, um, you know, it just makes a lot of things easier and you can more fine, uh, fine tune the permissions this way. So yeah, cool update. It, it is. And to be honest, I, I thought that something like, like this would already be in Cosmos DB with SQL API, but it's good. It's, it's in public preview now. From me, uh, another public preview is on-demand capacity reservations. And in essence, this is an SLA for your VM deployments. And I know I'm talking about a lot of VM updates, but it just happened so that there's a lot of updates for VMs. And the idea here is that perhaps we anticipate that next week, Monday, we need to spin up 27 VMs of specific sorts, and we want to ensure that we have the capacity available, even if we don't have those VMs running today. So this allows you to do a reservation that we anticipate 27 VMs of X next Monday, make it so. And through that, you, a, a company would get an SLA that that capacity reservation is in place for you. Yeah, cool. So I think I have two more updates, um, which are fairly similar because they are Azure Security Center updates from February 2021. There's already some episodes or some notes available for the, uh, you know, most of March, but since the entire month has not passed yet, I will wait for the, with that until the next one. So I've kind of separated this into what is in preview and what is not. So the things that are in preview in Azure Security Center that is noteworthy is Microsoft Defender for endpoint integration with Azure Defender now supports Windows Server 2019 and Windows 10 Virtual Desktop. So if you're working with those products, that might be a, a nice update. Again, this is public preview. And the other preview feature that I actually like perhaps tenfold more is workflow automation can be triggered by changes uh, to regulatory compliance assessments. So when you get a result from a, an assessment, you can trigger uh, automation. So uh, whenever something is failed, something passed, something was skipped, or something was unsupported to scan, you can get um, your automations going, whatever that automation is, if it's sending an email or if it's more complex. So now you can kind of take action on those things uh, automatically, which have been requested for a long time. So this helps to kind of automate your Azure governance game. And I know we talked about Azure governance in several episodes in many different angles. This is just another angle, but specifically for security. So when the security center runs an audit on something and it was previously green, but now all of a sudden it's failing, you can trigger this automation, whatever that is. That could be a message, that could be an email, that could be, you know, whatever. So whatever capabilities exist in the automation framework. Uh, so that's kind of welcome news. 
because for me and my organization, I see a lot of use cases where I would, you know, I, I would want to know not only when something fails, but also when something that used to fail now has been mitigated. So you know, kind of want to build, same thing like when a build or a release in Azure DevOps fail, I want to get notified and say, okay, something went wrong. It's failing over here. Can you take a look? Okay, take a look, mitigate. Then I want to know when it's back up and running. But then after that, if everything is okay, I don't want to know about it. So I just want to know when it fails. And then the first time it succeeds after the failure, I want to know, and then that's it. This is something I could build with automations. Pretty cool. It is cool for sure. Um, I have two more as well. Uh, and the first one is a bit more challenging, I, I think because the service itself is fairly new. And now there's already a new feature, which is now in public preview. So the service in question is Azure Purview. And it now allows you to register Azure subscriptions and resource groups for scanning and data classification. So my understanding of, of Azure Purview, I, I think we've sort of mentioned this briefly. Perhaps it was announced initially at last year's Ignite, and we touched on this. But I haven't really worked with this yet. But my understanding is that with Azure Purview, you can register different data uh, stores, SQL databases, uh, VMs, file shares, and whatnot. And then Azure Purview would scan those and would then allow you to classify what sort of data am I seeing in here and then react accordingly. Perhaps we are again seeing credit card data in this file share. We really cannot migrate this to the cloud before we clean it up. And now with Purview, there's this added feature of also having a more holistic look at Azure subscriptions and also resource groups within those subscriptions. Cool. Then I have the final part of the Azure Security Center updates from February 2021, which is in GA. So I wanted to separate those. The, the things I just mentioned before was preview. Now this is GA. This has rolled out. Uh, you have new security alerts page in the Azure portal, so you can check that out. It's just an upgraded experience. Uh, Kubernetes workload protection recommendations has been released, which is kind of cool. So if you work with that, you should take a look. Uh, direct link to policy from recommendation details page is also something. So what that means is when you're on the recommendation page, you see that something failed or something has been flagged over here. You click it, you see a recommendation. This is how you can mitigate. Then you also now have a link saying view policy definition. So you can see why is this breaking? What policy definition is causing this? So you can kind of go in there and maybe if you want to make adjustments or understand, um, you can take directly a look at that. So it's a super small change. But I, I recall when I have explored these things in the past, I saw the recommendation and then I had to open a new tab and I had to go over here, find the policies and try to find the one that cost this. And now there's a link, so easy. You also have SQL data classification recommendation that no longer affects your security score. And the only reason I'm mentioning that is I know I talked to someone in the past who said that I'm now getting a recommendation saying sensitive data in your SQL databases should be classified, but there was nothing they could do about it. So of course you could just exempt it from being alerted, but now I should made a decision to pull this out. So it's not impacting the score. Maybe there's a, a decision around that. I haven't read on the actual decision. I just know that if you suddenly see your score go up and you used to have this, this might be it. So it's important to, uh, to just know about. 
And the final thing also in GA is the asset inventory page has some very welcome updates. And you can now uh, see a section saying unregistered subscriptions, because when you go there to the um, uh, Azure Security Center, it's going to say, here's all the unregistered subscriptions, ergo, where you have not enabled Azure Security Center, and you might want to do that. Um, and with the filter on the asset inventory page, you also can now count the added um, uh, the uh, count the amount of resources when you filter. So you know when you're in the filter page and you say, um, let me take a look at the recommendations for, I don't know, storage accounts, and you pull the dropdown. Now you will see storage account and then a parenthesis saying you have 215 of them. So you kind of get the, the picture of how much resources you're looking at. Not a big change, but it's a very welcome change because I can now make a you know immediate filtering decision when I see this in the UI. And the final thing related to that page as well is you can filter uh, by results that has an exemption in place or not. So you can see all the results, but then you can also see, have we made an exemption for any of these things? And you can filter the list to only show things I have made an exemption for. So you can kind of get the, uh, the bigger picture. And the reason why I think this is important is sometimes, sometimes you make an exemption for something and then you kind of forget about it, which is not good. Then you can go back and you can review what have we made exemptions for? And do we still stand by those exemptions? Or should we actually revoke the exemption and let the rule run through and, and actually provide alerts? So some welcome updates and all of those are in GA. Excellent. A final one from me, multiple new features for Azure VPN gateway in public preview. And these are awfully specific but I feel super useful. So VPN connection management now allows you to reset an individual connection. And this was a problem before, because if you had uh, perhaps a site-to-site -site VPN built between your on-prem and Azure, and something wasn't really working, the only thing you could do is reset the whole gateway, and that could easily take 30 minutes. But now you can reset just that individual connection. Uh, you can also view the security association of a VPN connection, and you can uh, do packet capturing on a VPN connection. So these, these small sort of things they've added that perhaps we should have had a couple of years ago, but now we finally have those. And last but not least on this, for point-to-site VPNs, where individuals open a VPN connection to one of your VNets in Azure, you can specify multiple authentication types per connection. So you don't have to have multiple different ones. And I think that's all I have. Do you have anything left? I mean, I have a long list of things that came out of Ignite and as a result, a long list of updates, but I think the, the ones we have touched on today are the, the interesting ones, at least in a condensed format. So I, I think I'm happy there. Good. So last but not least, the weird question to Toby. So if it came down to the fact that with COVID-19, commercial air travel would simply cease to exist, you couldn't fly commercially anymore, but you had you had one month left to travel. Where would you go, or would you go and just stay at home? Uh, that's a great question, and I I mean I have for a long time been been an avid fighter uh, for making our environment better. I would not go anywhere. Um, I would probably take my family and go out into the woods and do some ecological harvesting or whatever. Uh, I would probably not go on and. and um, airplane. And the reasons are, of course, the environment. But also, if I did that now, 
I would kind of get the euphoria again, like, whoa, man, yeah. I'm seeing a new place. And then it's going to cease to exist forever. But right now I've gotten adjusted to not travel, not get on an airplane. So I'm, I'm in a happy place. You know, sure, I miss a couple of things. But if I went now for a month, you know, you know, globe trotting and, and hopping to different locations for a month, and then I could never, ever travel again, that would just kind of reignite the, the spark. And I would probably miss it even more. So I would leave the environment alone. I would not go anywhere uh, by plane. I would just enjoy family and friends to whatever extent we can. Hopefully with uh, you know some vaccines and, and keeping our social distance will bring all these crazy numbers down. We can maybe start enjoying some normal life uh, soon again. But until then, outdoor activities uh, with adequate distance and just taking my own family out for some trips um, and hiking experience is probably what I would do. Sounds really good. I recall reading years ago that in the 1950s, when they would sort of start these holiday flights, uh, perhaps in Europe as well, uh, the, the trip time from Finland to Spain would take three days with two layovers, overnight layovers. And now it takes four hours, maybe five, depending on where in Spain you're planning to go. So I, I sort of would like for travel to go back to this more relaxed way of doing oh i can meet you there but it will take me three days to get there so so perhaps i will spend two weeks there then because it takes me so long to get there <laughs> yeah yeah makes sense all righty this was fun a lot of updates again uh thank you for tuning in and until next time see you then Thank you for tuning in to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.